This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Peter Lindemann. He lives in Schoharie County and likes looking at big national pieces of the past through a local lens. As a boy, he was fascinated with Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War and memorized the Gettysburg Address. Today, as he takes on the role of Lincoln for local performances, he recites the address his own way. Rather than words softened into accepted platitudes over time, Lindemann's Lincoln reads the words as a defiant speech, a rallying cry given at a time when the Union could well have been lost. The address is still a needed rallying cry today, Lindemann says. So, welcome, Peter. And I'd like Thank to you. start by asking you to tell us what that means. Sure. Thanks, Melissa. It was uh, about three years ago, there was an article in uh, Washington Post that they were doing an archaeological dig in Manassas, Virginia, where the Second Battle of Bull Run took place during uh, the Civil War. And they found a uh, surgeon's uh, burial pit, which is the first time they ever found one, and they found some amputated uh, limbs there. And when I, as soon as I read the article, I remembered that James Tanner, who was a, a local guy from Richmondville, and he unfortunately lost both his lower legs at the Second Battle of Bull Run there in Manassas, had them both amputated on the, on the battlefield. And uh, uh, I remembered that that's where he had lost his legs. So I thought, well, they may have just found James Tanner's legs. Now, I concluded it by saying that, you know, chances are, of course, they were not James Tanner's legs. But whoever's legs they were probably underwent the same uh, harrowing um, ordeal that uh, James Tanner did. So the article really talks about Tanner and having his legs amputated and the ordeal he went through and how he almost died. And then he, the reason he's uh, famous is because that he went on to get fitted with prostheses and then got a job in Washington with the Ordnance Department. And on the night of Lincoln's assassination, he was boarding in, uh, in right next to the Peterson House where Lincoln was taken. They needed a, a stenographer to take deposition, and uh, Tanner had learned uh, shorthand uh, after he had uh, had his legs amputated. And he was called in, and he took shorthand, and then he went in, and he was present at uh, Lincoln's deathbed. So that's James Tanner's uh, claim to fame there. Well, that is quite a claim, and it's so amazing to me how you've delved into the Civil War dead of Schoharie County. You have an entire book, A Crooked Gun. Can you tell us first about that title, Why a Crooked Gun, and secondly, about the painstaking research it must have involved to put together that kind of history? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, first let me confess this to an embarrassing moment that I had. Um, when I wrote the book, I called it, yeah, A Crooked Gun, and it's still spelled that way, A Crooked Gun, The Civil War Dead of Scary County. I did a presentation, and uh, the reason it's called that is because in the book there's a, uh, a young soldier uh, named uh, Sovereign Brown who picks up 
a, a crooked gun on the battlefield, and then it discharged. Someone else picked it up, actually, and, and it discharged and uh, uh, hit Sovereign Brown, and then he ended up dying from it. He was only 14 years old. And uh, so he's one of the, the Civil War dead in the book. I gave a presentation for a group one time, and somebody came up to me afterwards, very politely, instead of bringing it up in front of everybody, and he said, you know, uh, your name is spelled correctly, but I think what you, the name is, uh, it should really pronounce a crooked gun, crooked meaning cocked gun, and that oh. made a lot more sense to me that someone had picked up a cocked uh, gun and then had gone off and uh, hit Sovereign Brown. So um, uh, what uh, the uh, genesis for the book was, we were putting up a monument in the uh, Old Stone Fort for the Civil War dead because there was none. So the idea was, okay, let's try to identify uh, all the guys that had uh, died. And I ended up uh, finding about 396, I think, identifying from Schoharie County alone that had uh, died during the during the Civil War. So it was kind of a, uh, uh, a matter of, of collecting uh, names and uh, finding information from different sources. And it became a, a kind of a challenge to, to get as many as I could to, to recognize all these guys that had uh, that had died. And to think that from Schoharie County, which at that time had about uh, 32,000 people, and, and uh, oddly enough, has at about the same amount now, uh, that uh, that many that many people died uh, in the Civil War from from our area here. Yeah, that's uh, more well over ten percent. That's stunning. So tell us just what yeah. the challenges are. How do you go about amassing that history? Where do you look? What? Where do you begin? And tell us just some of the <laughs> pathways you take in in coming up with that information. Yeah. Well, luckily, some of the work had already been done. Uh, there was a book written uh, by George Warner, who himself was a Civil War veteran, called The uh, uh, Veterans of uh, Four Wars of Schoharie County, and where he had documented the veterans from the Revolutionary War of, 18, War of 1812, Mexican-American War, and the Civil War. And he had uh, written this book, and he had uh, uh, somewhere in the range of 200, I think, uh, that had died from uh, from Schoharie County. And there's a famous story where he went around and tried to, to sell the books to people. This was soon after the war, and I think there was no, no appetite for uh, these kind of books, especially... When in the book, it just talks about how some of the men had been, uh, you know, shot through the stomach, and and he's talking to these people's families and widows and things. So he got so disgusted that his books didn't sell that he uh, went home to Summit and in the backyard by the creek he buried his books. Uh, and uh, there's stories about some of the old timers. They'll have a book and it still has a musty smell to it because it was one of those books that had been uh, buried and then later uh, later dug up. But uh, George Warner's book was one source, and then there's also sources. The official source is the Adjutant General's report, which is the official military record. So I went through those um, to, to find out. And also newspapers. Uh, a lot of the newspapers, and you're in newspaper business, of course, and you know a lot of them are now online, including the, uh, the Altamont Enterprise. Uh, the old ones under uh, nyshistoricnewspapers.org. So going through those, I was able to do searches on uh, soldiers who had uh, who had died. Uh, the Enterprise wasn't around then, I don't think, uh, but other newspapers were. And so I was able to pull together uh, all the all the people that I could identify. 
Wow. Well, as you say, there is a time for everything. And poor George Warner picked a time when, as you say, people had no stomach for the Civil War, having just survived it. But now it seems to me like a particularly opportune time for interest in Civil War history with the reawakening across the country of um, the racial injustices that still exist. And um, I'm just wondering if there, do you feel this is a time that's ripe for people to be looking back at that history? Do you find people are interested in it? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, uh, I also, uh, uh, and I think you may have mentioned, I also portray um, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and uh, I'll give some of his uh, uh, speeches, like the second inaugural address or the Gettysburg address or address to the troops. And uh, it, it has, it, it sounds so uh, fresh and as though um, it's somebody that's talking uh, now. And a lot of people came up come up to me after I do a presentation and said, I wish you were still around. I would... I would vote for you. Um, so, you know, these, these issues uh, are still out there uh, they, and even have been you know, exacerbated uh, in the last year or so. Um, they, uh, it's certainly, uh, certainly timely. I think that's one reason why, why Lincoln is someone uh, from every year. There's new biographies that come out, which seems amazing that they haven't, uh, after 150-some years, written everything they could. But there's always new, uh, new angles and, and new things coming out. So, yeah, it certainly is a, is a, is a real timely, uh, timely topic. Well, so tell us about that, um, what it's like to portray Abraham Lincoln. Have you, I know you did it in Knox a couple of years ago. I wasn't at the Mm -hmm. performance, but I heard so much about it afterwards. It really made an impression. I'm just wondering if you could kind of start at the beginning when when you first decided to, you know, put on the tall hat and actually become an historic figure. What made you decide to do that? Well, when I was a kid, I was always I was fascinated with Abraham Lincoln, and I was fascinated with the Civil War. And I think a lot of boys are, uh, for some reason. And uh, uh, I memorized the Gettysburg Address for no reason other than I just wanted to, to memorize it. And uh, as I got uh, uh, older, uh, I was interested still in the Civil War. And then uh, I had uh, uh, lost, uh, I went on Weight Watchers, and I lost over 100 pounds. And after I did that, somebody said, you would make a good uh, Lincoln. So I tried it at one of our uh, meetings there, and that uh, went over well. Then I ended up getting a coat and a hat and the boots and a tie and the, the whole thing and started doing it for, I did it for school groups and uh, Museum Village down in uh, down in uh, Monroe, down there, and historical societies, things like that. And what I learned was you have to really respect um, the... Uh, person that you're portraying. Obviously, I'm not Abraham Lincoln, but the people that come to the presentation want to um, invest in this idea, uh, you know, this suspension of disbelief. Uh, and so you have to respect that. And uh, I had one woman come up to me in, uh, in uh, Greenville, and she said to me, she says, Mr. President, she says, when I get to heaven, you're the first person I want to, I want to meet. And I, I reached down, I shook her hand, and I said, ma'am, it looks like I saved you the trip. 
Now, Lincoln never said that, but it sounds like something he might have said. So actually, the more you do it, the more you kind of get into the voice, you know, and, and the feeling of, of that. And, and you have to um, respect, uh, respect that because a lot of people have really strong feelings about Abraham Lincoln. So you have to uh, be respectful, be respectful of that. So I want to go back to a couple of things you just mentioned here. You said as a boy, you were very interested in the Civil War and Abraham Lincoln. Just tell us a little about your boyhood, where you grew up, and what sparked that interest. Was it something in your yeah. family, or what? What? how did that happen? Well, see, I was born in uh, Syracuse, but then my uh, father died, and, and when I was eight years old, we moved to Colony, and I grew up really in Colony in the suburbs. I didn't come to Scary County until... Uh, 1986. I grew up in Colony, and uh, probably was my sister who had given me a book. Uh, I think, if I remember right, the author was Stephen Laurent, and it was a book about Abraham Lincoln, and it had a lot of uh, photographs in it. And I can still remember, I must have been in uh, sixth grade, we were doing presentations, and we had, if you remember, uh, uh, you're probably younger than how old you are, but we had this huge uh, projector, it was a, what do you call it, opaque projector. Mm-hmm. And the thing had to weigh, you know, how much it weighed. It was huge, and it, and it heated up, at, you know, like an oven. It was so hot. And you would put in your book underneath there, and it would project the uh, image onto the screen. And, you know, it was quite a technological marvel. And I can remember still on the stage doing a presentation on Lincoln, uh, showing these pictures that were in, this, uh, in, the, in the book. And uh, I think it was because my sister had given me that book, and she gave me another book also. Uh, and she ended up actually becoming a becoming a teacher. Uh, so I think uh, it was those pictures. The, the Civil War. Uh, there's a lot of uh, photographs of uh, soldiers and and battlefields. Not action, but you know uh, the aftermath. And Lincoln, of course, was photographed uh, almost 300 times, I think. And he was he was very much in tune with the times and take took advantage of the latest technological innovations and photography was one of them and he made sure that he uh, took advantage of that he was very progressive as far as uh, as far as those kind of things uh, go so do you consult these photographs when you're setting out to portray him I mean I I don't um, you know I, I made a decision not to try to uh, look exactly uh, like Abraham Lincoln or sound exactly like Abraham Lincoln. My emphasis has been more on the speeches. Uh, I memorize the, uh, the speeches and the presentations I do without any, uh, without any uh, notes or anything. So it's more of an emphasis on that. I did a presentation one time and a woman said to me, she says, you know, you really ought to do more of an accent. And I think what you want to model yourself after is Everett Dirksen, the senator from... Uh, Indiana, I think, back in the uh, 60s and 70s, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's what Lincoln sounded like, she said to me. But I, I, I never did because I didn't, uh, I thought that would be too, uh, too much of an, an effect. Uh, uh, so uh, I concentrate on, on, on the speeches because Lincoln was, among other things, probably one of the greatest writers we've had in, in our history, you know, uh, of anyone. When you read his, uh, his speeches and his, his writings, uh, they're really succinct and precise, and there's no other words that could be used. It's, it's uh, just a perfect, uh, perfect balance in, in, in most of his writings there. 
Well, would it be putting you on the spot to ask you to recite the Gettysburg Address, the thing that you memorized first as a boy and I'm sure have used many times since? It's such something sure. we... Okay, sure. let's hear it. Sure. And I have a little bit of a, you know, a little different uh, emphasis, I think, that was uh, placed on it. Uh, and as you'll see, so... Okay, here we go. Uh, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any other nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on the great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus so far nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Wow. I see you did something very interesting with emphasizing the we against the they, and the now, I mean, that's quite an interpretive yeah. speech. I think what, what uh, gets lost sometimes, and when uh, sometimes it's done, is that at the beginning, um, there's a, uh, uh, a conflation of the we and the they. In other words, uh, uh, four score and seven years ago, our fathers, but now we are engaged. You know, our fathers and we, as though we're the same thing. But uh, Lincoln made this distinction that it was the, literally his, his, you know, fathers, grandfathers, that generation's fathers and grandfathers that had won the, the, the revolution and created this country. Now it was his generation's duty and his specifically to preserve the Union. So he's making this distinction between uh, the forefathers that had uh, forged the Union, and now it was up to them to save the Union. And also when he talks about, you know, dedicate, consecrate, hallow, a lot of, you know, most people do it. We cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate. We can, and it always bothered me. Why would he use three words that mean the same thing? He's trying, not trying to show off. He, he's very succinct. He wouldn't do that. But I think what he's uh, emphasizing there, he likes to use triplets. Uh, uh, he, you know, we cannot dedicate. We cannot consecrate. We cannot. In other words, we can't. And he, and he liked to use uh, 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 sets of threes for a lot of things. And so I think he was saying that in, in that point. And then at the end, it's, uh, I think that a Gettysburg Address is really a defiant speech. Because in 1863, November, it did not look good uh, for the Union, and it looked like the Union would, might very well be lost. So his, his speech was defiant in saying that, uh, this, that we, this shall not perish from the earth. He was making a statement. We look back on it now and say, well, of course it didn't perish from the earth. Of course, the Union's still here. But at that point, it, it looked just the opposite, that 
uh, it was not going to last. So I, can't, I realized that at one point that I think, and we don't know uh, what his emphasis was, but I interpreted that, that would, that's what the emphasis uh, would have been. Well, I like your interpretation. Um, I haven't heard Thank it you. read that way, and especially your idea of this defiance. So it becomes kind of a rallying cry of a speech more than a yeah. consecration speech, an idea that we yeah. have to carry this war forward and win. Um, kind of speech, which it doesn't sound like when you read it on the page, you know, because we're right. reading it through such a, a long, distant lens, you know, but mm-hmm. if you... Exactly. Yeah, and it's, it's become such, you know, such a, a gold uh, standard. You know, this is one of our great uh, documents in history in this great speech, and he defined what our union is and that kind of thing, which is true. But what people don't realize is at that time, you know, he was running for um, re-election. And basically what he was saying was that I'm going to, I'm going to prosecute this war. Uh, this, we're going to continue this war. We're not going to give in to the uh, Southern Democrats who want us to, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, seek peace and things like that. We're going to, we're going to go forward and we're going to, we're going to fight this and we're going to fight it to the end and we're going to preserve the union. So it really was a uh, uh, defiant uh, speech, I think. Um, not, not so much just a, uh, you know, a bunch of kind of you know, platitudes that it's uh, kind of become sometimes. Yeah, it's odd how the thing that was once so radical can, as you say, become seen as platitude. But the last time I heard that read, besides your rendition now, which was quite remarkable, was um, this summer when there was the either uprising or riots in the city of Albany. Soon afterwards, um, Dan McCoy, who's the county executive, hosted a prayer session. And it it was at the Times Union Center, which has kind of a cathedral feeling, you know, those big high ceilings. And the different um, religious leaders, they had a Muslim, they had several different Christians. And I think it was a Jewish rabbi who read the Gettysburg Address. And the words then in that setting um, had a meaning that is closer to what you're des- describing here. Um, it wasn't a platitude. It was like a call to action. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that uh, right. the right. union. This, you know, we still we still have things to be fighting for. So, yeah, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. fascinating. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's still, it's still a timely, timely, uh, timely speech. Yeah. 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 So, do you have among the different speeches of his that you recite for people and include in your presentations? Do you have a favorite or one that you think most defines him um, as a writer, I, as a speaker? I think the, a- uh, the one, actually, my favorite one is uh, the second inaugural address, um, which uh, was given just a few weeks before he was um, before he was assassinated. And uh, it, uh, in, in the audience that day was Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist. And afterwards, he uh, uh, he came into the White House and. Uh, Lincoln asked him what he thought of it, and uh, Frederick Douglass says, well, Mr. President, it reads, it reads more like a sermon than a state paper. And it really does. He invokes uh, God's name uh, several times. He quotes the, quotes the Bible in it. And basically what he says in the speech is that American slavery, not Southern slavery, American slavery uh, is the uh, sin that caused uh, God to uh, uh, give us, give this uh, civil war, or to uh, uh, cause this civil war to happen. It was God's punishment for this 
sin. And I think he had to he came had to come to that conclusion because if he didn't, I don't think he could have remained uh, sane because with six hundred thousand Americans dead towards the end of the war, to think that um, it was something that he could have prevented or it was something that was in within man's power to stop you know he really had to come to that belief that it was it was in god's in god's hands at that point so that's a very uh moving speech and the one that's usually quoted is the last paragraph you know with with malice toward well, i with hate to put you on the spot twice but before I hate, that it's, I, i'm uh, wondering it's, it's a really a, a wonderful speech i hate to put you on the spot twice but if you have that one in your brain as well i would just love i don't think people are familiar with that as they are with a gettysburg address i would just love to hear that if that is something you are up for doing or reading at least that part of it that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah. The part that, uh, the part that I really like is that towards the end and it's, it's a paragraph in there. Um, and, uh, he says, what does he say? Um, yet if God wills that, uh, how's it go? I mean, let me back up a little bit. Yeah. Sorry to start. At no, the end take your time because really, yeah, yeah. 600,000 dead, you know, <laughs> it's just a stunning number because here we are with the coronavirus at what is it close to 450,000 dead. And it just seems so devastating. Right. And how would you cope with that as a leader feeling you caused it? That is a question. Right, exactly, and you know, and every everyone that uh, died in there was uh, was an American. Um, yeah, you know, so uh, uh, that's what, uh, uh, and he was constantly, you know, berated and, and harassed in in the press, and uh, you know, uh, so it was uh, it was quite a, uh, a a turmoil there, and he had to come to this uh, uh, conclusion, but they actually have it in front of me uh, here now, that part, uh, okay. because I don't want to get it wrong. Okay. But uh, what he says was, uh, he says, uh, oh yeah, okay, so he says, uh, this is an interesting part, he talks about the two sides, he says, both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces, but let us judge not that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. And here's the part right here. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which, in the providence of God, must needs come, but which, having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers and a living God always ascribe to him? Finally do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue, until all the wealth piled by the bondmen's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous, altogether. 
and then he concludes with the with the malice toward none. But uh, that part is, is is so powerful. He goes back to the Old Testament there with the judgments of the judgments of the Lord, and uh, you know, woe unto the world because of offenses. I think that's from uh, uh, Matthew, and uh, it's just he he invokes the the, the Bible and and God uh, so much. And when we contrast the second inaugural with the first inaugural, the first inaugural when he first got to Washington and. Uh, he it was a long speech and it was really almost a uh, uh, lawyerly argument on why the uh, South should not secede and how the North would not attack them unless they were attacked. Uh, and it only has the one one memorable line uh, towards the towards the end there. But the second inaugural is really a, a heartfelt. Uh, uh, um, a heartfelt portrayal of, of, of the war in his eyes and, and what caused the war and and the fact that it's going to continue uh, you know as long as as long as God wants it to well I can see so much of yourself is wrapped up in your studies on Lincoln you mentioned earlier that um, you know new biographies are coming out all the time do you have a favorite book on Lincoln one that's most informed your view of him and your rendition of him or are there several that speak to you I'm just wondering if our you know listeners are interested in reading one <laughs> what yeah. one you might suggest yeah yeah well the one uh, that uh, actually has to do with this speech is it's called uh, Lincoln's uh, greatest speech. I got it in my bookshelf. It's by Ronald uh, Ronald C. White, and that's about uh, the uh, second second inaugural. And um, Carl Sandburg uh, wrote a wonderful uh, biography, and some of his might be a little fanciful, but in there I tell the story about the uh, the gingerbread men that he talks about when Lincoln lived in uh, in Indiana. I don't know. Uh, I don't know and, the story of the gingerbread men. What is that? Yeah. Uh, when we lived in Indiana once in a while, my mother used to get some sorghum and ginger and make some gingerbread. It wasn't often, and it was our only treat. One day I smelled the gingerbread and went into the house to get my share while it was still hot. My mother had made me three gingerbread men, so I carried them out under a hickory tree to eat them. Uh, there was a family living near us that was poorer than we were, and their boy came along as I sat down. Abe, he said, give me a man. So I gave him one. He crammed it into his mouth in two bites and looked at me while I bit the legs off my first. Abe, give me the other one. Well, I wanted the third one for myself, but I gave it to him. And as it followed the first, I said, you sure seem to like gingerbread. Abe, he said, I don't suppose anybody on earth likes gingerbread better than I do and gets less than I do. (laughs) (laughs) I like that story. So little things like that. Now, that probably never happened, but Carl Sandburg told that story. I remember when I did a presentation at Museum Village, uh, and I talked about the fact that Abe Lincoln had read uh, uh, Parson Weems' book called The Life of Washington. And in that book, um, Parson Weems tells the story of George Washington chopping down the uh, the cherry tree. And so I told this story, and there was this uh, young man, he couldn't have been more than eight or ten in the front, and he raised his hand. He said, I don't believe that that story about George Washington chopping down the cherry tree is true. So I don't know if it's true or not either, but I do know that that story was in uh, Parson Weems' uh, biography of called The Life of Washington. And I do know that Abraham Lincoln read that uh, book. So uh, I made the uh, 
uh, uh, correlation there that Lincoln was influenced uh, by Washington and always tried to be uh, just as honest as George Washington, of course, earned the nickname of of, uh, of honest Abe. So um, that's what I, you know, back to what I was saying before about being respectful um, uh, of your audience. And uh, uh, and he was right. He, he That story may not be true, but that wasn't the point. The point was that it's in the book and, and Lincoln read that, read that story when he was a young man. Yeah, well, that's an interesting lesson in itself, isn't it? We can be shaped by things that aren't true. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> we can be shaped by um, beliefs. And certainly as a school child, we all learned about the cherry tree. And then as adults, we all mm-hmm. learned that wasn't true. But here, what you're saying is much yeah. more interesting. Doesn't matter. Yeah. It's something that influenced yeah. Abraham Lincoln, whether it was true or not. So Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's one of those stories that, for whatever reason, endures. And, you know, if we talk about Lincoln, George Washington, the cherry tree... Uh, pretty much everybody has a, has a good idea of what you're what you're talking about. So it's it's really a, a touchstone, I think, and uh, uh, it, it's an important uh, important story. And it's part of uh, uh, part of being an American, I think, is is, is knowing that story and and uh, the idea that we aspire uh, to to honesty. Well, there are so many things I wanted to talk to you about, and our time has gone so fast. I Maybe just at the end, we should touch a little on the importance of local historical societies or museums of local history, like the one that, you know, you're going to be talking through soon at the end of February, because um, could you just talk a little about that? I feel like you're very in tune with both the Old Stone Fort Museum and also with these local history groups that call on your expertise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, yeah, I'm, I'm a, uh, me- a member of the Board of Trustees of the uh, Scary County Historic Society. We meet at the, at the fort there right now. We're meeting on, on Zoom. Uh, and also the, I'm a member of the Cobleskill Historical Society, which hasn't been, uh, hasn't been meeting. And also I have a group uh, uh, starting April. We started last April 10th, a local history group that meets on Zoom. And uh, there's about 65 people on the email, but we get probably 10 or 12. And we meet every Friday. And if anybody's interested, let me know, and I'll put them on the, put them on the list. But um, so how would they how would they let you know? How would they contact you? If they if they send me an, an email, uh, I can give you my email address if you want. Yeah. Uh, the uh, yeah email address would be Padre P A D R E dot Lindeman L I N D E m-a-n-n at gmail.com you just put in there that you'd be interested and i'll send every i'll send people the the link to to get into it um but the uh the local history it's important i think because in my you know upcoming book that may have just found james tanner's legs it's all local history stories but as i found you can tell uh big stories big national stories with with local local stories. For example, um, the story of James Tanner and you know, going off to fight in the Civil War and being President Lincoln's deathbed. Here's a guy from, from Richmondville, right in uh, right here in, in Schoharie County. So these kind of things are uh, uh, important, and we have all this local information. But this local information, these books and these pictures and these documents aren't very useful if people don't have access to them. So I think the role of the Historical Society is to make sure people have access. So in other words, they publish 
local histories and make them available. We just did a thing with the Scary County Historical Society, and um, I had uh, pushed for this for quite a while, and we got it through finally. The Scary County Historical Review, we got it uh, so it's available online. And uh, we told him it was uh, no longer copyrighted, you know, if, as far as purposes for that, but it can be considered public domain and, and be available. So Hattie Trust, which is an online uh, uh, reputable educational uh, service there, they have it online so people can actually read it. So this there's a, there's a treasure trove of information that's out there, for example, in this Scary County Historical Review, which comes out quarterly since 1937. And all this information is kind of hidden and it's kind of hard to hard to find unless you know where to look or you look through one of the indexes that people have put together but it's kind of cumbersome so now people can do searches and that's a wonderful thing to be able to do is to do a word search uh, on a document or a newspaper uh, or you know, a, a, a whole bunch of newspapers and put in a, a topic you're interested in like um, Altamont Enterprise or Civil War Soldiers Altamont or or anything like that and come up with these things so uh, local historical societies uh, really kind of maintain these things and and make them available and provide a forum for people to get together and talk about uh, what they're interested in and what one person has and you know one person uh, may be interested in that kind of thing well that's marvelous i am so glad you do what you do and i i hope to go online and check out some of this myself so thank you so much you're welcome it's been a pleasure 